0: This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shabbat Tov. Thank you, uh, thank you, Alicia. And whatever oh, you left me, the papers here. I could say the same thing again, huh? But thank you, guys, thank you, everyone for inviting me. Thank you for all for joining. I think it's such an unbelievable thing that I have such pleasure when you come to a place, especially on Motze Shabbat, at eleven o'clock at night when most people, whatever it is that they're doing. You know, you're coming over here before a little. People are going and they're starting to get ready for Rosh Hashanah. It's something so beautiful. And a special thanks to the Shia Synagogue for going and, and, and doing this. Not only this time, but every single year. Most organizations, they do the week before Rosh Hashanah. Two weeks before. Here already, they're preparing already almost four weeks before to getting ready for Rosh Hashanah. It's really unbelievable. And may you have tremendous amount of siyatah d'shmaya and Hatzlacha in all that you do. Imagine last year. After Rosh Hashanah, some guy comes up to you. He's wearing a white cape. He's got tinfoil on his head. And he says, by the way, I just came from heaven and I want to tell you what this year is going to bring. And he goes and he says, you know, for this year, Times Square is going to be closed. There's not going to be a person walking it for weeks on end. You're like, okay, this guy's crazy. Then he says, and he says, businesses are going to be closed for months Shoals, schools are going to be closed. People are going to be homeschooled. There's no way that that's happening. Then he goes and says hospitals are going to be full. Planes will not take off. Countries will be on lockdown. So at this point you're thinking either he's crazy or it's World War III. And then he comes and he tells you this. And he says the hottest commodity, the most difficult purchase that you're going to be able to buy is going to be toilet paper. (laughs) Then you know for sure He's crazy. You can't make this stuff up. You can't. And this is what, all this was decreed last Rosh Hashanah. And it's so unfortunate, there's so many of our family and friends that are no longer here due to that, the coronavirus situation. And when we think about it, it really puts it in our mind, like, you know, getting ready to, like, this year, who knows what's going to bring this year? The place where I pray on Rosh Hashanah, always always bring up what happened the previous Rosh Hashanah. And it always makes you scared because you have people that are not here anymore. Like I know way too many people that were here last year and not here anymore. And that's a very scary thought. And this is something that we can sort of do something about for ourselves for this coming Oshana. What how are we going to go and make sure that we have in a most successful, and amazing year? So we all know, Elul, there's an acronym, Anilo Dodi Vidodili. I am to my beloved, and my beloved is to me. Rab Shimshapikas goes and explains. And he says that. This is a time where, HaKadosh Baruch God is close. We're able to go and acquire a relationship with God. Now this is not a temporary relationship, because the term is over here that you're using is beloved. Beloved means something that's, that's, that's strong, something that's long-term, something that's a real relationship. And it's very unfortunate when you look at, you know, the way that... Most of us, when we deal with Judaism, with Yiddishkeit, it's sort of we like just push buttons. We got to pray, okay, let's go pray. We got to do chasid, okay, let's do chasid. We got to do this, so we do this. But we do it without even thinking. We just like just do the things without any putting any emotion into it, without putting any understanding into it. This is what Elul comes. Elul comes that you start building a relationship. God is home, God is here, and we have the ability to build this relationship. There was once a father who used to travel a lot in business. He had three boys at home. And after one month away, he comes home, and the boys are all in the rooms. And he has a 5-year-old, he has a 10-year-old, and he has a 15-year-old. And he's going to go to each boy's room to say, hi, you know, daddy's home. He knocks on the first door, he opens it up, it's his 5-year-old. His 5-year-old was in bed already, he jumps up, he's like, daddy, daddy's home. He runs, and he gives him the biggest hug. And he gives him the biggest kiss. He's like, he holds him so tight. And the father right then is thinking, he's like, there's no money in the world that's worth more than just what I have right here. says hello to his son, goes into the next son, the 10-year-old. Knocks on the door, and before he opens the door, he overhears his son. His 10-year-old son is on the phone to his friend. And he says, oh, yeah, you know, my father's coming home. He's probably home now. He says, now I have to go, and I have to behave properly because my father's very strict, and if I don't do this, he's going to scream at me. If I don't do that, he's going to scream at me. And now I have to make sure I'm my best behavior. Now, the father's hearing this, G- gets hurt a little bit, but, you know, we'll get, you know, it is what it is. He opens the door, he's like, hey, dad, you know, they, they exchange their pleasantries, and then he moves on to the next son, the 15-year-old. He knocks on the door from the 15 year old son, all he gets is a grunt. <laughs> and I hear who people have teenagers, there's a grunting stage where they don't speak. I know specifically boys. There's a stage where they just speak by, huh, huh, huh. And the parents know this means that he's hungry, just like a baby. You know, by the cry, you know that this means that he's hungry, This he needs a diaper change. There's a, there's a teenage, there's like a span where they grunt. He knocks on 15-year-old boy, his 15-year-old boy's door, grunts, huh. He says, All right, I'm home. He doesn't even look. Completely ignores him. He's like, don't you want to say hello to your father? He ignores him completely. Not wanting to start anything, he just came back, closes the door and leaves. Just look at the difference. You have here the five-year-old, so excited to see his father. The 10-year-old, who asks now to be a little bit careful. The 15-year-old couldn't care less. But the truth is, this is how we treat Elul. You have people that come to Elul like the five-year-old, be like, Daddy's home, now's the time to build a relationship. Let's go, let's get close to God. And they're so excited, they want to give God, so to speak, a hug. Then you have the 10-year-olds. The 10-year-olds are the people that are like, you know what? Well, is coming up. I need business, I need shidduch, I need panasad, I need this. I realize panasad is always twice, three times, four times throughout the same cycle. And we need this, we need that, so you know what? Come on, you know, I have to be good, I have to be a good boy, I have to be a good girl, because I have a shopping list for God, and now in order for me to get that, I have to be on my best behavior. That you have the 10-year-old. Then you have the 15-year-old. The 15-year-old are the people that live life as... Nothing has changed. Elul, av, it doesn't make a difference. Their business as regular, everything is life as usual. Now, when you look at the difference between the 5-year-old, the 10-year-old, and the 15-year-old, what's, what's really the difference? The difference is perception. What's perception? You have, uh, perception is how you perceive reality. You know, the famous example, in order to explain this, is you, you have a glass that's half full, or some say that it's half empty. What's the difference? It's how you perceive it. Either you look at it as half full or you look at it as half empty. The, the, when you look at the scenario where the h- father came home after a month, all the kids see the exact same thing, daddy's home, but they perceive it differently. The five-year-old is so happy. The 10-year-old is a little bit nervous. The 15-year-old couldn't kill less. So all that it changes in us when it comes to Elul, you know what changes and how we perceive it? It all depends on how we perceive life, how we perceive Elul, how we perceive God. Now, the psycholo- A lot of psychologists goes and, and bring the down the, the the concept of perception and how some people have a very negative perception, where they think that everybody's out to get them, everybody is against them, and that's why they'll be defensive if you talk about them negatively. That's why they'll they'll feel very victim like. They'll be they'll be in a state, as a psychologist uh, call it, a state of of. Unhappiness. They're always going to be unhappy because that's how they perceive people. Perception shapes our reality. The way that we perceive people is the way that we change our reality and how we see ourselves, how we see our relationships, and most importantly, how we see God and how we see the Torah. You have two people that come to a Shi'utra. Both of them sit right next to each other. Both of them hear the exact same Shi'utra. One leaves saying, Wow, that blew my mind. I'm going to change my life forever. The other guy is like, eh. It was alright. Guy scream a little bit. Blocked some letters over here. I didn't think he was this tall. And then you go and you leave your life. What changed? What was the difference between one person? Oh, they sat right next to each other. They heard the entire shield. Off. What was the difference? The difference is how you perceived it. Do you want to be inspired? Do you want to change? then you'll see the light, you'll see, the, you'll see the, the ability to do so. But If you couldn't care less, then you're not going to be able to. Maybe the best example I give you is uh, for people who follow sports, is you have two people, let's say, go to a, a football game. They both sit right next to each other. They watch, the, and they, they they involved in the same exact game. One person lives like it's Tisha B'Av. He's ready to, you know, start mourning, he had. He's like, that is the worst game ever. I can't believe that that this, it was ridiculous. The other person, he's on a high. He's like, this is the best game of my life. And they're so happy. This person is in mourning, seven weeks of velut. You can't talk to him. His team, you know, passed away, so to speak. The other person is Sheva Barachot. He's in the seventh heaven. How is it? They both look that they watch the same game. How is it that one person is so upset and one person is so happy? How is it possible when they saw the same thing? The answer is, it depends what city they grew up in. This person grew up in New York. This person grew up in Dallas. Say New York won. I don't know who's a better team. Let's say New York won. So the people from New York are so happy. It was the greatest game. The people from Dallas, they're upset. That's the worst game ever. You see the same reality. You see the same thing, but it all depends on your perception. There was once a young boy, 24-year-old, by the name of Joey. Now Joey, he had his grandmother in a nursing home, and he was very makhbeed every week to go and visit her. Not every day he would get the same time, not every, you know, every, whatever, whenever he has a chance, but at least once a week, he goes to visit her. One day he goes and he's visiting her, and he notices a young, beautiful woman walking from room to room. She has a stack of magazines, books, cookies, all these snacks. She wheels it in and she starts handing people out, saying some nice words. How are you? And then schmooze a little bit and move on to the next one. This woman comes to Joey's grandmother and also says, how are you, Mrs. Schwartz? How's everything? Here's what you requested last time and starts, you know, schmoozing with her. And then she leaves. Joey's like, uh, what's, uh, who is that? And she's like, oh, Sarah. Sarah's a sweetheart. She comes in here once a week, and she goes, and she goes from room to room, and we, we tell her what we want, and she brings either cookies or cake or fruits or books or magazines, whatever it is that she wants. She comes, she's a volunteer. She comes once a week. Joey's like, wow, that's very nice. Eh, continued life, so life as usual. Next week, Joey comes. Guess who happens to come at the same time? Sarah's there at the same time. And he's like, well, and he sees her. And this, as luck would have it, week after week, for the next four weeks, Joey comes exactly the same time as Sarah. Finally, he starts singing. He's, like, wow. he's like, wow, she's really special. She's a young, beautiful woman. You know, And he is a young, let's call it a beautiful man. In the same time of the Shiduchim, he's like, you know what? Maybe we could uh, arrange something. So he calls the shadchan and tries to arrange something. The shadchan says, Sir, sure. He gives her all the information. And uh, he says, uh, you know, she's Sarah from the nursing home. And the shatchan says, you've got to give me more than that. You know, in our community, we have so many girls visiting the nursing homes. You've got to give me more. So Joey says, okay, let me, let me do some research. And uh, let's just say that Joey did a little bit too much research. <laughs> uh, he knew a lot about Sarah after this. And he goes and says, listen, she lives over here. She goes to this school. She tries this card. She likes this car. She, she was going on. And so the shatchan says, okay, okay. You know, I got it. He makes some phone calls, calls the parents and says, listen, I have a you know, possible shidduch for your daughter. And... Uh, they send over the resume, and the, the parents after, you know, a few days says, you know, it's not really for us. So the Shatkhan says, okay, fine. He goes back to the boy and says, you know, they're not really interested. The boy says, okay, I tried. Over the next few weeks, he keeps on seeing Sarah over there. And, you know, he starts becoming infatuated. He, he knows so much about her, uh, you know, after all. And he's like, okay, let me try, let me try a different Shatkhan. And he tries a different Shatkhan and that try, and again, negative, negative, he gets declined. Every time. Finally he says, Why don't they like what's wrong with me? Like what's what's going on? And he pressured the shatran And the shatran says, Listen, he says, You come from a certain family, a certain community, and, and this particular family is very well to do, very well respected, very well off financially, and you just don't match up. So Joey said, Okay, fine. But he he couldn't let it go. Eventually, you know, he decided he's gonna give a pick up the guts and try to go and make the shiduch himself. He walks over to Sarah one day when she was in, her, in the nursing home and he tried to set something up. It didn't go. She respectfully declined. Joey at this point, fine. I, I understand. It's not going to happen. And he starts thinking, he says, you know, she's such a good girl. She does so much chesed, so much good for the community. Like, let me do something for her. He knew where she lives. He knew what car she drove. He knew everything. He decided what he's going to do. is every morning... He's gonna wake up early. And he's gonna put a flower on her car. And that's it. So he wakes up early in the morning. He decides today is gonna to be a rose, and he puts a flower on the car. And uh, days go by. Every day he puts another flower on the car. And uh, eventually she's like, "What's going on over here? Like, is this like who is this? Like, that's constantly putting on you know the father was never. They're gonna call the police. There's someone following my daughter around wherever she parks. He has a you know a, a flower on the car." And she decides that she's going to, you know, one day wake up early to see who's putting this flower. So she wakes up two hours before her normal time, and the flower is already there. She's like, who's coming in the crack of dawn to put it? She wakes up four hours beforehand, and she sees Boch Hashem no flower. Within three minutes, after she's looking at her car with her binoculars, she's sitting over there, she's, you know, seeing who is coming. Up comes, you know, this old car. Out comes Joey, puts a flower, and walks away. She sees him, she runs out, and she's like, "Stop!" And he's like, like oh. "He's like, oh, what, what's going? He yeah, hey. how are you?" <laughs> um, and she's like, "What are you doing?" And he's like, "Nothing. What are you doing?" <laughs> and she's like, "Do you put the flower on my car every day?" And he's like, what, "What flower? What are you talking about?" And she's like, "No, come on, like, stop playing. Like, what are you doing?" And he's like, listen, you know, like, I, I'm not doing this that, you know, you'll find out and be like, oh, and you'll fall in love with me and we'll get married and we'll happily have He's like, no, you know, like, I understand that it's not going to happen. But he said, you know, I see that you do so much chesed for somebody else, so many other people. You make so many people happy. I said, who makes you happy? I said, let me put a flower, let me make you ha- put a smile on your day, you know, in the beginning of the day. And she's like, you know, it's very sweet, but, you know, it's really unnecessary. And they part. Joey didn't stop. Next day, kept on coming flowers. <laughs> About a month or two goes by like this, and um, he keeps on putting the flowers. Now already the family knows. It. They call him Rose Boy. This is the guy that comes in, puts the flowers. And whatever. They live life as regular. She sees the flowers. She chucks it in the back seat with all the other flowers, and she drives as regular. Time goes by, and Joey keeps on putting the flowers. One day he notices the flower from yesterday is still there. And he's like, all right, let me swap it out, put in a fresh one. And, uh, you know, he moves on. The next day, he sees a flower from yesterday still there. And he's like, ah, maybe she's on vacation. You know, a week, two weeks go by, same flower. So after a month, he starts, you know, making some phone calls. Like, is everything okay? What's going on? And nobody wants to tell him anything, obviously, because, you know, he's, he's an interesting guy. Um <laughs> He calls his grandmother, he says, listen, when was the last time that Sarah came to visit you? And she says, you know, i am come to think about it, she hasn't been here for like six weeks. And he starts calling family members and friends and this and that. Finally, they, t- they say that he gets like somebody who's able to like spill the beans. And they say, like, you know, unfortunately when Sarah was a little girl, she had some sort of kidney issue. But Ba'ul HaShem, it went away, and they thought, that's it. But all of a sudden, it came back that she had to be hospitalized, and now she's, unfortunately, she's on dialysis, she's not well. And Joey's like, oh, my gosh, is there anything I can do? They're like, no, no, don't worry. We got it taken care of. You know, just, uh, you know, we got this. Joey, you know, feels connected. He's constantly, you know, give, giving sour flowers. He feels somewhat connected. So every few days, he calls a hospital. He tries to get information. He calls a family member. And as time goes on, unfortunately, the, it, it deteriorates, her condition. And as he finally finds some family member who's going to give him some information... And a family member tells him that, you know, it's not looking good. And he's like, what do you mean it's not looking good? And they say, you know, like, she's on a transplant, tra- transplant list. And if she doesn't get a transplant soon, the prognosis is not good at all. So Joey says, like, what, do, what does that mean? And they're like, she doesn't have that much time. And he's like, he's like so, so why don't they get the transplant? And, you know, the family's like, they're trying. It's very difficult. There's a long list. It's just, it's not working out. So Joey thinks for a day, for a two, calls back again. How is she doing? Same thing. He calls the hospital and he says, listen, there's a certain girl up here, Sarah, but whatever, and I want to go, uh, I want to test to see if I'm a match. And the hospital says, yeah, the Chavad would come down. They come down, they test. He gets a phone call two days later from the doctor. And the doctor says, Joey, you're a match. And there's silence on the other line. And Joey says, okay, let me think about it. G- give me a few days. And over the next few days, every day he calls the family. He says, how's that doing? Not not doing good. Every day, any improvement? Nothing. Finally, after a week, he calls the doctor back, and he says, doctor, you know, I thought about it. I'm going to give her my kidney. But I have one condition. You cannot let her or the family know that it was me. And the doctor says, fine, anonymous donors, we have that all the time, not a problem at all. They call the family with the great news. They found a donor. Everything is going to be good, and, you know... Simcha in the house. They get ready for the operation, and Bo Hashem, the operation was successful. Joey gets out of the hospital a little bit early before Sarah, and life goes on as usual. As they get back together, Joey starts continuing again with the flowers, not mentioning anything. After about two years, Sarah wasn't getting dates anymore. You know, beforehand, she was a girl without any medical issues, without, you know, now, unfortunately, she has certain issues. She wasn't getting the dates that she used to. And she's getting older, and the f- parents are starting to worry what's going to be with, the, with the Sarah. And suddenly the father thinks, says, you know, what about the rose boy? You know, he seems like a good boy. <laughs> and Sarah's like, yeah, I guess so. And the mother's like, really, should we? They're like, listen, she's not getting any younger, making, you know, the daughter feel good, uh, you know, the way parents do. And uh, they go and they decide, you know what, let's set it up. They call Joey up and says, hey, uh, you know, are you interested in, still interested in the shiduch? Joey says, what? Of course. <laughs> I'll be there. Says, Don't you need to know that? Don't worry about it. I got all the whole information. You just tell me what time. And they date, and it goes well, and they get married. There was one problem, though, is that Sarah felt that she settled. She's like, ah, oh, I got the guy that, you know, it's because I couldn't get anybody else because of my medical condition or because of this. And, she, you know, once a person feels that they settled, that's it. The, the, the marriage is going straight down. And slowly, slowly, you know, a little fight over here and a little fight over here, and then started escalating. And Joey wasn't making as much money as her friends' husbands. Her friends had beautiful houses, beautiful cars. They would go on multiple vacations. And, you know, their lifestyle was not this. Joey, you know, he didn't have the ability to do that. And she would start screaming, make more money, come on, what's going on? And Joey says, I'm trying, I'm sorry, I can't. You know, whatever I'm doing, I'm not being successful. But he tries to make her happy. He leaves notes throughout the house. I love you. I care about you. You're so special. I'm so lucky that I married you and she's like, "Yeah, you're so lucky that you married me." And she goes and she you know throws it out. He leaves a little chocolate on her, you know, by the pillows, by over there and she starts chucking it out. He starts putting flowers by her car again and she's like, "Enough with the flowers. Enough with the chocolates. Stop spending money on this. You know, save the money." He says, "Fine, you know, I'm sorry." 2 years go by. They have a, they have a baby. But the marriage is not getting any better. And then one day, Joey gets really sick, and he has to go to the hospital. And they tell, they tell him, he says, you know, this is from your, one of your pre-existing conditions from, uh, you know, a while back. And Sa- this was the straw that broke it. Sarah's like, wait a minute, you had a pre-existing condition? He's like, what, what do you mean? He's like, you hid something from me? I told you everything about me. You know about my transplant. You know about my history. You know about everything. And you hid this from me? She had enough. She's like, we need some space and she goes and she and as she leaves the hospital she's going to decide she's going to stay with her parents but before she leaves the hospital she goes over to the front desk and says you know I'm um, you know Joey's wife over there can I please have a copy of the medical records and they say yeah sure you know we'll mail it to you and she goes she packs up her stuff and she goes to her she goes to her parents house a week goes by she goes home she decides that she wants to you know pick up the mail see how the, you know how everything is doing hasn't visited Joey once as she sees in the mail, she notices, you know, the medical, Joey's medical record. She completely forgot about it. She goes, and she starts opening it up. She's like, oh, who knows what I'm going to find over here. And she's like, starts talking to herself and starts moving it forth, see what she's going to get. And all of a sudden, she gets to his past medical history, and she sees over there transplant. And she suddenly, she's like, she's like, what? And she goes down, she starts reading it, she starts scanning it, and then she sees her name. And then she sees the kidney, and then like, just like words start flashing out. And she feels very faint. And she starts sitting down. And she's like, wait a minute. And she starts plugging the pieces together. And she's overwhelmed with so much emotion. She runs straight to the hospital. She runs straight into Joey's room. And she barges in. The nurse is like, oh, who are you? What are you doing? He's like, I'm his wife. I, you know, I need a cup. She's like, I never saw you here once. And she's like, I, I was, I'm here now. She runs into the room, Joey's there, all these tubes and machines are plugged into him, and she's running and she's crying, and she's like, Joey, it's me, wake up, wake up. And the nurse runs in and says, don't, don't shake the patient. And she, he's, she's like, I, I need to wake him up, I need to tell him something. And he's like, you can't tell him something, he's in a coma. She's like, what do you mean he's in a coma? And she's, the nurse says, she's, he's in a medically induced coma. And she's like, well, you got to wake him up. I need to tell him something. I need to tell him how sorry I am. I need to tell him how much I love him, how much I care about it. And the, you know, the nurse says, I don't know what to tell you, you know, but you, we can't wake him up. You know, He has an infection. It spread to his brain. We need to put him into, into this coma. So she calls a doctor, and she tries doing it, and nothing doing. They cannot do anything. She calls a doctor and he says, how does it look? And the doctor says, to be honest, it doesn't look good for him. And she starts crying. She says, Doc, you you got to help me out of here. we got to do something. And the doctor says, we're trying all treatments. We're trying all antibiotics. We're trying everything that we can. He's not responding to anything. She calls her parents. She's like, use every connection that you have. I don't care the cost. I want Joey back. And they start calling, getting the most expensive, experimental treatments. And they're flying in doctors from all over the place. Every day. Sarah's in the hospital for 12 hours. She's holding Joey's hand. She's crying. She's like, Joey, I'm so sorry. Joey, please come back to me. It's your wife, Sarah. She talks in nonstop apologizing to this person in a coma. Finally, after about two weeks, the doctor says it looks like it's getting better. And it gets better and better until Baruch Hashem, he finally gets out of the coma. Oh, the hug that his wife gave him. And she's like, you better not ever leave me again. And he's like, Am I gone? What's going on over here? It's like, are you the same wife that I. And he didn't understand, but you know, <laughs> some, certain times when your wife says something, you don't, and, you know, especially if it's good, you'd be like, Yeah, sure, you know, you don't respond. And a few weeks later, he gets healthy, he goes home. The Shalom bite was unbelievable. Sarah was the best wife, probably waiting in hand for anything that he wanted. He coughed, what's wrong? You need something? Anything that he wanted, he got. The Shalom bite was legendary, it was unbelievable. The question that we have to ask is, what changed? It's the same Joey. Making the same money. Looks the same way. Has the same character trait, same personality. What changed? But he didn't change. Sarah's perceptive. Sarah's perception. Her, she herself, she changed. When she changed, then she saw how lucky she was to have this husband. She saw how, how special he is. And all of a sudden, from her perspective, he became the best person. He became the best husband, and the Shalom Bayh changed drastically from that. The Gemara in right at the beginning, Aleph goes and says, "Where do we learn that you're supposed to go? And when you marry a you know a woman, you're supposed to marry her with some sort of money? Now we use a ring, something of a value, and we learn it from Ephron. Ephron went and he had a cave. He had a special cave. Adam and Chava were in this cave." And Avraham wanted to go, and he wanted to bury Sarah in this cave. So he goes over to Ephron, and they want to make this deal. And uh, they make the deal, 400 you know, pieces of, of silver, and they go and they make the deal, and, and they each walk the separate way. The Gemah says we use a similar term, uh, terminology. It's called the Gezerah There's the same terminology with Ephron and Avraham. The same terminology with, with when marrying a wife. You say over here, we learn, kicha kicha Ephron. We learn that just like Avraham Avinu purchased a property with money, so too we marry a woman with money. Now you say this to the modern woman, it's not going to go over well. You're purchasing me? Oh, really? <laughs> You're purchasing me. I purchase you. You know, you're going to be you know, you can say that to a modern woman Are you kidding me? It looks it looks derogatory. Why would the it's such a there's such a holy union between a man and a woman when they get married and we're learning this from a real estate purchase? The answer is. The answer is beautiful. Ephron has a piece of desert that he wants to sell. And he says, oh, you know, and he sells it for an exorbitant amount of money, a tremendous amount of money. F1 leaves the business deal thinking he just did the million dollar deal. He, did, so, he sold a piece of desert and a cave, you know, for so much money. He won, he is the lucky one of the deal. Avraham Avinu, left that business deal. He says, I bought the cave where Adam and Chava is for 400, that's it? He says, I got the best deal. The Gemara is teaching us a very important lesson. When you go into a marriage, you have to think that you got the best end of the deal. You don't think, oh, you know, my wife, she's lucky that she has me. No, 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 you'd be like, I am so lucky that I have her as my wife. And the wife says, I am so lucky that I have you. The biggest lesson is look at the lesson of Avraham and Ephron. Each one left the deal thinking they are the ones that got the better end of the deal. Sarah, in the story, she all of a sudden realized that she got the better end of the deal. And that changed their shalom bite. It changed their relationship. The scary thing is, is that your perception changes your reality. Not only, it makes your reality. When we go and we look at Elul, it all depends on how you perceive it. Are you excited that God is here and you have the ability to build a relationship? Or maybe you're nervous and be like, you know, I have to do good because then I want to have a good year. Or maybe you couldn't care less. It all depends on your perception. You know, the rochot brings down that if someone does a mitzvah with joy, the reward that you get from it is a thousand times greater than if you did it and you felt it was a burden. And the rochot furthermore goes and says, if you do a mitzvah when, out of humility... Being humble, it's also a thousand times greater than is if you did a mitzvah with arrogance. Imagine what happens when you do one mitzvah with joy and humility. That's a thousand times a thousand. We could throw, you know, a little addition into this. It's the Ben Yishchai says when you do a, something, you learn to let's say Torah on Shabbat, it's a thousand times the reward of during the week. Imagine how much reward you get if you learn on Shabbat with joy and humility. A thousand times, a thousand times a thousand. Pretty sure that's like a billion. That's crazy. How much our our in Judaism, it's not just about, okay, we gotta do this, now it's time to pray. Let's press the praying button. Now let's do this. Now we gotta push the chesed button. Now we've got to do it. No, there's so much more into it if you put your heart into it. Anila Dodiva li, if you have that beloved, if you have that relationship, if you have that emotion, it adds thousands upon thousands of rewards to what you're getting already. You know, when people get close to the Yom Adin, they get close to oshana. we all think we want to add new things. What are we going to take up on ourselves? And it's great, you should. But today I want to put a little twist to it. You want to add good. That's not what I'm bringing up today. Today I'm saying do what you're doing, but do it with a different emotion. Do it as if you're doing it for your beloved. Do it as if it's dodili. You're putting it in. Imagine how much reward you're davening anyways. You're going and you're doing chesed anyways. You're making a bracha the next time that you pick up a cup later or your pizza, whatever it is that you're going to be eating later. Before you make that baha, think for a second. Think for a second who you're making. Who is God? How amazing it is. Bring that level of beloved. Bring that relationship. Make it real. That bracha is now worth a thousand times greater. With that, I want to share with you a gemara that I feel should be learned every Rosh Chodesh And I bring it up almost every year in my speeches because I feel it's so important. There's the Gemara on Rosh Hashanah that says that on Rosh Hashanah the entire world passes through God, Kivnei Maron. And the Gemara brings down, what's Kivnei Maron? It brings down three different interpretations. Number one, this is like sheep leaving a pen. You have sheep that are stuck and the owner wants to count it, let's say for Ma'asar. So he opens up a small opening and the sheep leave one by one. You can't count cheap while they're all moving because then you have to that I count this one looks the same as that one. You can't, you can't do it that way. So they let it leave one at a time and you count, you mark it, whatever it is, and this way you count it. That's one reason the Gemara gives Kivnei Maron. Number two, says it's like by King David's army where you pick it. This, one, this person, you're going over here and this person, you're going over here. Every soldier goes in a different battalion, every person, and the, and the general is there is telling who to go where. And finally, the third shot is that there's a house on, on Marom. And that's a very, very narrow path, very steep and narrow. And the only way that you're able to go up this path is only one at a time, single file. Says Rav Blazer. He says, I don't understand. Everything the Gemara just told over here denotes what? The same thing, single file. Sheep leaving, single file. The soldiers going one at a time, single. The people going up the steep hill, single file says, why do we need three different understandings of the single file? Let's just make it very simple. Let the Gemah say, how does the whole world get judged before God? A single file, one at a time. The Gemah also brings down that who gets judged first, the king or the people? And the Gemah says the king. Why does the king get judged first? Because it shouldn't be that when that that after all the people get judged and God is like sees all the sins of the entire world and says oh now the king is going to be in a bad mood so to speak and uh, then the king is going to have a bad uh, bad judgment. As for Blazer, what is this? God's moody? All of a sudden, if this one gets earlier, this one makes a difference? And Rabbi Yitzhak Blazer goes and answers something very, very important. He says, the way that HaKadosh Baruch Hu went and created judgment on Rosh Hashanah is everybody gets judged single file, one at a time. Why? It's because if everybody would get judged at the same time, then everybody will be in the same bucket. And the way that God did it is God made it in a way similar to the judge in this, in this world. If you're going in front of a judge, if it's in the beginning of the day, and the judge is in a good mood, be like, what? Okay, it's a speedy thing. Okay, come on. You know, it's good. You know, I had a good coffee over here. You know, the espresso was working well. You know, next. But imagine the 55th person comes in, spe- was speeding in the same place. Be like, how many people are speeding on this thing already? Enough. No, now you're going to start, you know, paying the price. So the way God, God goes. God goes the first person. Okay, you did a little sin over here. You know what? Okay, fine. Obviously, everything is mida, me da. But, okay, a little bit of a lighter uh, sentence. The next person be like, wait a minute. You also spoke Russian? He also spoke Lashanallah. What's going on over here? He says, No, it doesn't look so good. After the millionth person already like how many people are speaking Lashana? How many people are doing so many have a lot? The way that it works is that if you get in front of the line, you're gonna have a better judgment. If you're gonna get stuck at the back of the line, then you're gonna have a more difficult judgment. If everybody if God would judge everybody at the same time, then what would happen? Everybody would be in the back of the line. Everybody gets judged of the same thing. So God, in His mercy, made it. There's a way that you can have a better judgment. And how? That's if you get to the front of the line. The question is, so how do we get to the front of the line? So the answer is, like, Ma, there's three ways. And the way number one is like the sheep. What's the sheep? How does, which sheep gets to go first? The stronger the sheep, the, that, that sheep is able to leave first. Says, so like, Ma, you want to know who is going to be able to be judged first on Rosh Hashanah? the strong ones, the tzaddikim, the people that have a lot of mitzvot under their belt, they get judged first. doesn't really help us. We're too close to us. We're going to start becoming a tzaddik. We don't got enough time. So, what's option number two? Option number two is you have like King David's army where the general picks this one and then that one. But the problem is is that why do they pick this one? We don't know. There's a certain schud. This one has a certain schud. That one has. And when you look at it, it we don't know what schud brings you further, One schud brings you closer. You can have a rasha that goes in the front, a tzadik that goes in the back. Only God has this calculation. It doesn't really help us. However, the third, the third shot is that it's a steep path. And it's one at a time that people are getting up in there. But the question is, how do people on a steep path, a narrow path, how do they get to go first? Very simple. The first one that shows up gets to go first. You think about that, you go into some sort of bank or some sort of you know, supermarket. Who gets in front of the line? The one who's the wealthiest? No, the one who got there first. So too, says you want to get a good judgment? Get in line. How are you going to get in the front of the line? Start preparing earlier. Whoever prepares earlier, gets in the line. Says, I'm, I'm waiting over here, God. I'm waiting for judgment day. You can see I'm preparing. So important. You want to have a good judgment? You want to have a successful year? This is the best secret that I could give you. Start preparing early. Because if you could just get in front of one person in line, you're already so much better. This, by the way, also proves that we're all connected. One person can't say, oh, you know what? My sin has nothing to do with you. Be like, no, no, no. <laughs> Especially if you get in front of me in line, as that's going to make a big difference in my judgment. We all are connected, but if you have the ability to get that one step ahead, that's going to be all that so much better for you. The question is now, how are we going to do that? How are we going to get up ahead? So the Torah tells us, Chazal tells us, Elul, anila li. If we start going, and we start feeling the way that we do the mitzvah just a little bit differently, with a little bit of that emotion, of that beloved, of that joy that you're dealing with when you're doing a mitzvah, that's going to put you so much more ahead of the line. The Pele brings down that ahava, love, and simcha, and happiness are one of the same. And the, the Shagas Arya brings down that there's a mitzvah to be, uh, uh, there's a special mitzvah that, to be besimcha on Rosh Hashanah. It's a hard mitzvah, you know, it's, Rosh Hashanah is when you're getting judged if you're going to live this year or you're going to die. But there's a special mitzvah on Rosh Hashanah that, to be besimcha. And not only that, the Chtham Sofer goes and says the merit, if you have the schut of having mitzvah on this day, will give you a good judgment. And our Victor Miller also says being happy is going to give you a favorable judgment. So, the question is, is how do we get to that level of simcha? How do we get to the next time we make a baha? How do we get to that level of anila dodiva dodili? How do we get to the fact that I'm going to make this Judaism, you know, something that's beloved to me? Not something that, oh, I have to do, but something, oh, I love it. I'm connected to it. Imagine 200 years ago, <clears throat> a wagon driver goes up to his fellow wagon driver and says, you know, I want to tell you what Gan Eden is like. He says, you know what Gan Eden is? Gan Eden is you get to your wagon, but there's no horses pulling it. There's an engine. They're like, what's well, an engine? They're like, whatever, don't worry about it. And uh, he says, not only that, in your wagon, there is something called shocks that you don't feel the bumps. They're like, what's shocks? Don't interrupt me. Um, <clears throat> and he says, not only that, in this wagon, there's air conditioning. No questions. And not only that, you could play music in this wagon. They're like, how big is this wagon? You could put an orchestra in there. <laughs> no, no, no. It goes with radio waves. Well, that's ra- you don't ask any questions. Just trust me. Gun Eden. imagine that. And then imagine that you could just punch in your destination and the car drives by itself. Like, you're, you're on drugs. You know, like, what are you kidding me? That's not possible. Be like, no, yeah, that, that's really what it's like. And then there's another guy who says, yeah. And you know how your house is? You walk into your house, and you could just talk to a system, and it turns on your heat, or your air conditioning, or your refrigerator, or your microwave. You don't even have to do anything; you just talk, and it listens to you. You mean, like a servant? Be like, kind of, but it's not real. It's just a machine. Be like, you're unbelievable. That's, there's no way that that's that's gonna be. It's like, oh yeah, and th- there's even better. Like, you don't have to go to the well to get water. You just like turn a knob in your house, and water comes out like, you're, There's no way. What are you, are you kidding me? This is war, the water's just going to fall everywhere. You, how is that possible? And you go and you start explaining somebody from 200 years ago how you live your life today. Your clothing is door, dirty, go throw it into a washing machine. A little box that goes out dirty and comes out clean. It's unbelievable the way that we live our life. It's unbelievable that what we have. But the problem is, is that we're so used to it. Our perception of reality, we're so used to it that it's like, eh. You know, I can't believe I don't have a washing machine in my house. I can't believe that my air conditioning is not working, you know, for a day. And you get so upset and be like, you know what a bracha it is? Do we ever stop for a second? You're sitting here in a synagogue that's temperature controlled, that has good lighting, that has, there's too so much bracha over here. When was the last time that you went, you know, like, thank you, God. Thank you to the president. Thank you to whoever is, you know, running all the, you know, the, the there's so much that we take for granted because we're used to it. You look at the Torah. You open up a Sefer bereshit. God created the world. Shouldn't your mind be blown by God created? That's crazy. The flood. You start, Matan Torah. You start reading about this. is unbelievable. But yet, you know, we go through the, all the holidays, Pesach, Pulim, all the crazy stories that happened to the Jewish people. And we're like, yeah, you know, we sing it and we go through it and then, you know, we move on with life. Do we ever stop for a second and be like, realize, look how amazing our lives are? Look how amazing and grateful and thankful we have to be to Hakadosh Bahu for what He has given us. When was the last time that you said thank you to God? When was the last time that you had that relationship? You know, <clears throat> People come and they, you know, tell me very often when they see like a, a new Baal tshuva, you know, somebody who just became, and they watch them pray, like it's one of the hidden tzaddikim. They even pray, they don't even know how to read, let's say, Hebrew. They're just reading in English. And they're just reading in there, but they sit for Shmon Ha'esah 45 minutes. I'll tell you, I have students personally, they told me the Shmon Ha'esah took them 45 minutes. And they would say every single word like that. They had a, such a, and how they leave? They were on such a high. be like, I just prayed Shimon I high-five. This is great. This is awesome, right? And a month goes by, still praying good. Let's see that person two years down the line. With before you even think, he's finished writing Shimon say, What happened? How is it that in the beginning, you were so pumped, and then you just like sort of fell out? And the answer is, there's no freshness anymore. When you deal with love, when you deal with ava, there's a certain infatuation stage where this, when you open up a siddur and you realize what you're dealing with over here, all of a sudden, this emotion rises up and with you and you're like, wait a minute, I can't, this is amazing. Like there's so much going on over here. How can I go fast? How can I skip words? You stop for a second and be like, this is unbelievable. So one way to get this is to start appreciating what you have. Start appreciating who you're talking to. Anila You're dealing with God over here. You're dealing with God who has given you everything. You have a chance to talk to him. You have a chance to make a bracha. You have a chance to say slichot. You have a chance to go and pray. Stop for a second and be like, this is so amazing. God, I love you. You're amazing. Anila You know, all that changes is just your perception. Revar Cutler brings down an interesting question. It says, you know, there's two Gmarot. Why was the Bet HaMikdash destroyed? The Gmarah Yuma goes and says, the first Bet HaMikdash was destroyed for the three cardinal sins. Idolatry, immorality, and Avodah Zarah. No, we said that already. And So you have the three big sins, that's why the first Bet HaMikdash was destroyed. The second, Sinat Hanam, Zashon HaRa. Then there's another Gmarah Darim that says why was the Bet HaMikdash destroyed? It says, You went and you left my Torah. Why did the Gemara goes and explain? That you didn't make a You didn't make the blessings of the Torah beforehand. And the Ran brings down the Rabbeinu Yonah and says, Why didn't we make the blessing of the Torah back then? He says, Because Torah wasn't so important to us. So asks Rev Aaron Cutler. He says, This is a contradiction. Why was the Bet destroyed? Was it because of the sins? Or was it because we didn't make the Torah important to us? So if Aaron Cutler goes and explains... So imagine a guy is driving on the highway. And his wife calls him up. And he's like, honey, we just won the lottery. We won $50 million. And he's like, what? It's like, that's unbelievable. Baruch Hashem, I'm giving so much to charity. And you know, it goes on and on. He's in heaven. He dri- hangs up with his wife. He's driving. All of a sudden, a guy cuts him off right in the front. Now, if that guy would have cut him off 30 minutes earlier, it would have not been good for anybody in the vicinity. He would have waved a certain finger at him to say hi, um, and then he would have used some nice words to say hi and bye, and it just would have, you know, changed a little bit his mood. But now this guy cut him off. He's like, yeah, go ahead. You know, who else wants to go? Yeah, go ahead. But imagine even more so. Someone, you know, makes a shortstop right in front of him, he makes a shortstop, and someone, you know, hits his, uh, you know, gets a little fender bender. Goes out, it's a brand new car, and he sees his entire, you know, back is, is, like, crunched in. And the guy's like, I am so sorry. I can't believe I did this. I wasn't looking. I was on the phone. It's my fault. You can call insurance. I'll take care of it. The guy says, don't worry about it. Life is great. Don't worry. Relax. Don't worry about it. Go, go, go. Sasa. So, so. You know, it's really right. Just go. What happened? Before, he would be like, are you kidding me? You know what? This, I don't care. I'm insurance. I'm going to sue you and your family and your grandparents and your great. I don't care if they're alive or dead. I'm suing everybody in the family. I'm taking it. A- I don't care if you have an umbrella mortgage. I'm going to get everybody. And Five minutes later, he has all of a sudden. What, what changed? What changed? Him now he doesn't care. And the answer is, he's, he's in a good mood. He won the lottery. He's a millionaire now. He doesn't care about this stuff. Says Byron Cutler. Why is it that the people were busy with sins that they did avodah zarah that they had you know immorality? that they had Shepichat Amim. Why was it that they had? You want to know why? It's because they didn't feel the Torah as being so important because if they would have felt the Torah being so important, they wouldn't have time for anything else. They wouldn't have cared about anything else. If you're in a level that Torah is the most important thing in your life, then you couldn't care about anything else. You're living in the clouds. You are a multi-millionaire. That's how you feel. And your life is different. Be like, I'm lucky I'm a Jew. When was the last time you said, thank you God for making me Jewish? What was the last time, my I says, Thank you God for making me Persian. Very good, tight-knit community. There's a lot of blessing that comes to it. What was the last time that you felt lucky for who you are, for the family that you were brought in, for the siblings that you have, for the parents that you have, and probably the most important for your spouse? What was the last time that you felt lucky? And you have to ask that to yourself. And if it hasn't been in a while, Maybe you know why things are not as great as they ought to be. If we would just change our perception and say, and we're coming to God and be like, I am to my beloved. I love you. I am so lucky to be over here. Guess what? The next time you're going to make a bracha and you feel lucky, it's a different bracha. You feel like you just won the lottery. The next time that you stand up to prayer, the next time that you say eslichot, you're going to be in so much level of joy. So guess what? Everything that you just did, just times it by a thousand, because that's your reward. I want to finish off with one final story. There was a man who had uh, business. He had, you know, a bunch of kids. He was very busy, and he had a, a mother that has been a widow for 20 years. And, you know, he would try to go and visit her but with the family, with the business. With the, you know, it just, it, he just couldn't get around to it. One day he decides, you know what? That's it. i got to go spend time with my mother, I haven't seen her in a long time. She's all alone. He calls his mother and says, Hey, Ma, won't you, uh, I want to go out. Uh, let's go out for dinner. And she's like, What's wrong? He's like, No, no, nothing's wrong. I, I just want to spend some time with you. She pauses for a long time. She's like, Come on. What's wrong? Did you do something bad? What happened? He's like, No, no, I'm serious, Ma. Everything's okay. I, I just really want to spend some time with you. And she's like, Okay, that's great. They set up a date, and uh, he comes to pick her up. This is an elderly woman. She has her coat ready. She did, you know, she did her hair. She did her makeup. You know, she has, she put on her, her, the last dress that she wore on the wedding anniversary 20 years prior with her and her husband. And she's so happy. And he opens the door and there she is standing, beaming, gleaming like like an angel, glowing. And she's like, you know, I told my friends that I'm going out with my son tonight. They're so impressed. Uh, You know, they're so interested to hear what we're going to do. And, uh, you know, she takes his hand like this and they start walking out to the car. They get to the car, they get to the restaurant, small, simple restaurant, not expensive, and they ended up talking and talking, and the time came to uh, order the menu. The mother was a little bit old, she couldn't read the menu, so the son said, you know, let me take care of it, and he reads her the menu, and as he's reading her, he looks up, she's smiling with a little tear in her eyes. She's like, is everything okay, Ma, what's going on? And she's like, I just remembered when you were little, you know, I used to read you the menu. And he's like, okay, now let me return the favor. And uh, they go, they order. They have amazing conversation. They catch up. Simple stuff, nothing major, nothing, uh, you know, crazy change of events. Just simple, normal, day-to-day conversation. Afterwards, he goes, he drives her home, and she says, you know, I had a really nice time. He says, I want to go out again, but on one condition, that I'm going to take you out. And he says, fine, you have yourself a deal. Three days later, his mother had a heart attack and she passed away instantly. Like, he couldn't even do anything. And about a month or two goes by and he gets a, a letter in the mail from the restaurant that he went to. And in there is, you know, there's a receipt for a meal for two with a little note from his mother. And she says, you know, I paid this in advance, a meal for two. I don't know if I was going to be able to be there. So if I, I'm not able to be there, this is going to be for you and your wife. But I just want to tell you one thing. He says, you have no idea what that night meant to me. He says, that meant to me more than everything in the world. He said, she says, she goes over and she, she writes, he says, that made me feel like a million bucks. And she signs it off, I love you, son. If we realize the power of love, if we realize the power of Ahava that we have, it could destroy and it could build worlds. We have the ability to come to, uh, to come to Losh Shana over here, standing a thousand feet in front of everybody else. You want to know how? I'm not saying take upon yourself anything new. If you want to, you should. But do what you're doing. But do it with Ahava. Do it with Anila Dodi, Vidodili. And Bezat Hashem, with that, may we have a really activate Chatimatovah. May we have an amazing, successful judgment with us and the entire Klaal Yisrael. And may we see the building of the Bet of HaMikdash ben Meher b'amenu. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnyTime.com.